So Richard Rohr has written, people, Jesus tried to change people by loving and healing them. His harshest words of judgment were reserved for those who perpetuated systems of inequality and oppression and who through religion itself thought they were sinless and untouchable. And since our culture, much of it is moving in this direction, I just thought it might be nice to have that in front of us and to know that we are following the example of Jesus when we say no matter who you are or where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. Um, usually, I begin this time uh, with this slide, and I'm doing so again today. Because our goal is to be present and to be open and to be awake. But I just want to take a smidgen of time today to elaborate on this, if I can. Because I want to say something about these times together as I'm both currently seeing and as I'm currently seeing these times. Those are two different things, right? So I'm working on the assumption that what I want for myself and for those of you who attend these sessions, whether you're here in person, whether you're live streaming, whether you are listening to the podcast later, whether you're reading the text of this that goes out on Tuesday, however you get it, that our ultimate goal is to <clears throat> turn information into transformation. You get a lot of information here. Um, one of my professors um, criticized me harshly for not putting enough gravy in my work. Too much meat, not enough gravy. <laughs> that I keep remembering and then forgetting and then remembering and then forgetting and then remembering and forgetting what Richard Orr said over 25 years ago and that there is no detour around the hard stuff to get to where we hope to be. So you can't get on a plane and fly over several stages of development to get to bliss. At some point, we have, all of us, to take a very deep look at the very things that motivated us to get involved in this in the first place. There's a kind of faith and trust that's involved in this process that we have to be acquainted with and rely on. I also wanted to say that I am laboring under the illusion that I'm figuring this stuff out. And what is the illusion here is that 10 years ago, I was doing the same thing. And um, I go back and look at some of the stuff that I wrote 10 years ago, and it's embarrassing. Right? At the time, it wasn't. I thought it was good stuff. But if you kept a diary and you went back and read what you wrote in your diary 10 years ago about what was important, what you wanted, all that sort of stuff, the person you are now would be embarrassed about that, right? And if the person that you are today 
could read the diary that you wrote today, but you could read it 10 years from now. You'd look at the person you are today having that same kind of experience. So I just wanted to be clear that though I try to be clear and I sound like I know what I'm talking about, that we're laboring under this illusion that we can figure it out. So if you keep a journal, you can do that. So what are we up to in here? Thomas Burton said, is it possible you could live your whole life without ever having met the person who lived your life? And the answer to that is yes. So one of the things that we're about here is being present to who we currently are with the awareness of that illusion that I just mentioned and the transformative process that we hope we are involved in. We are not who we are. We are not who we will be. We're not who we were. We are not who we will be. We are in the process of becoming centers of freedom and honesty and love. <clears throat> now, if I didn't think some of you, I don't know how many, would bolt for the door, I would risk making this opening time of silence and meditation longer. Because this work that we are doing in here, I'm just planting seeds. And you've got to do the work of tending to the garden. It's hard work, but I think it's exciting and fun. And I just have this sneaking suspicion that a few of you, not very many, don't have a daily spiritual practice. That's needed because we suffer in this culture from depth deprivation. We live on the surface. Um, it saddens me that so much of organized religion has just become trivial. So these talks that I offer in here are intended to help us break through whatever habits of mind and heart we have that keep us from having the experience of life itself. So all of us, your teacher especially maybe, have to be open to the possibility that what we are doing in this space can change our lives. And if you're defended against that, I just want to invite you to maybe try to open up a little bit. Though I'm going to offer a couple of definitions later of spiritual practice in this talk. One way that we have uh, of understanding spiritual practice is that it is anything that we do that penetrates the illusion that keep us from touching and being touched by the depth of the sacred that is all around us and that is within us. So, that being said, let's be here. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. <clears throat> 
May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in my mouth and in my speaking. And may grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be in our ends and at our departing. Okay. In mystical, prophetic, spiritual teachings, there is nothing to hold on to. Hold on to that. In mystical, prophetic, religious teachings, or spiritual teachings, there is nothing to hold on to. In, in mystical, prophetic, religious teachings, there's nothing to hold on to. Those are different, and we'll get them. There's a difference between spiritual teaching, and there's a difference between religious teaching, and today we're going to be focusing more on spiritual teaching, and next week we'll go more deeply into religious teaching. There's a difference between the two. So can't cover both at once. So, in as far as uh, Jesus is concerned... Um, which is the path that we seek to follow. Jesus was a Jewish mystic in the prophetic tradition of his religion. You will memorize it. And, and, and um, all mystics, whatever religious tradition they're in, scare us and prophets offend us. Now that somewhat summarizes everything that we've talked about so far in this current theme of living in the sacred stream. Now today I want to talk about why nothing to hold on to is an important thing to hold on to. And next week we'll go explore why violating this truth, um, which is one of the reasons people in our culture believe such weird stuff, um, why that is, as well as what it means to follow the suggestion of the religious scholar Houston Smith, that it's better to dig one well 60 feet deep than to dig 10 wells that are 6 feet deep. So last week I raised a question for you to ponder, and uh, the question was, why was it that Buddha lived to old age, dying of old age conditions, and Jesus was executed at an age younger than most of us are now. Why was that? Now, though exact details about the historical life of Siddhartha Gautama, who is commonly called the Buddha, are not known, it's generally agreed that he lived to be about 80 years old. He, died, he, he was born somewhere around 563 B.C., somewhere in that era, and died somewhere around 483. So according to tradition, he was born in what is now Nepal to royal parentage, but he renounced that home life to be, he was married, had children. He renounced that home life uh, in the Hindu tradition at the time to become a forest dweller or what's known as a wandering ascetic. And after years and years and years and years of searching, he um, attained enlightenment. In um, He was at that time in what is now India. And he ended up teaching a way to live, 
which we now refer to as the Eightfold Path. Now, it's important, I think, to keep in mind, this is not a class on Buddhism, that Buddha was not, that Gautama was, was not declared the Buddha until about two centuries after his death. It didn't happen immediately. This is true in all religious traditions. It takes an origin event and then years and years and years and years and years and years, as you'll see about Christianity, for something to develop. Now, there were a few people in this country outside of academic circles who knew anything about Buddhism. And the understanding of Christianity that most people in the United States had up until then was some version of individual tribal religious understanding that we had in the culture. You were Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, not many Jews that we knew about in my part of the world. But then we had the 60s, which was a time of cultural revolution in this country. One of the things that happened in the 60s was the Beatles. It was a really big cultural shift because the Beatles brought with them a guru. And the guru introduced into American culture meditation, form of meditation known as TM or Transcendental Meditation. They franchised it. Some of you may have gotten involved in it. You would go to a TM place and you'd pay money and you'd get a mantra. And if you had that mantra, you'd be liberated. Alan Watts made a splash with all his books on Zen. Alan Watts became very, very popular among a certain segment of the population. As a matter of fact, those of you who listen to podcasts can go on and still get free podcasts of Alan Watts radio presentations. I highly recommend them. He's really smart. He was a really, really, really smart guy. Also during that time, and I credit him for beginning to introduce the religions of the East into the United States. And also about that time, there was a psychologist, Buddhist psychologist by the name of Jack Cornfield, with whom I got to do a smidgen of training, who introduced a form of meditation called Vipassana meditation. The word Vipassana is a Sanskrit word that means what is. And it was out of my personal involvement with and practice of this form of meditation that I came up with my definition at that time of spiritual practice as being the central truth of and for spiritual practice is paying attention to what is and developing the resources to be present to that. And central to that is being non-judgmental. I still think that's a pretty good definition of spiritual practice. Jesus of Nazareth was likely born sometime around 4 BC, was executed around 30 AD at the age of 33. Now my question last week for you to ponder was why did one of these guys live to be 80 and the other guy is executed at 33. I, I have personally benefited enormously from my exposure and involvement to Buddhist teaching. And again, today's time is not about Buddhism. 
But there are a number of correct answers to that question. I used to hate it in uh, graduate school when the seminar professor would say, now, why is so-and-so? And I put the question and we would answer and he said, nope, nope, that's not right, that's not right. I'm trying to guess. Why didn't you just tell us in the first place? So there are a number of answers to the question about why Buddha lived long life and Jesus didn't. Uh, the cultures were very, very, very different in which they were born. The eras in which they lived were very different. The religious context in which they were born were very, very different. The whole difference between the um, Hinduism at the time Buddha was around and the state religion at the time Jesus was around. There are other reasons as well. But the reason that I had in mind is that Buddha achieved enlightenment and then he taught that others could do the same. Life is suffering, he taught. And the way to achieve liberation from this suffering is by following the Eightfold Path. On the other hand, Jesus achieved an experience that he was a child of God. And so was everybody else. That was the heart of his message. And he went around teaching that mostly by how he behaved. And what he did was so upsetting to the social religious structure at the time that he was considered uh, treasonous and had to be put away. Because Jesus said, Caesar is not God. And that was something you shouldn't say. So according to the parable created by the early church, which we talked about last week as the temptations of Jesus, he came out of that experience with a realization, and then he began to see God in everything. He began to see God in everyone. And then, um, unlike John the Baptist and unlike the Buddha and unlike other religious teachers, he deputized people to go do what I do. Now, <clears throat> since I'm um, ranting about it all the time, let me just say a couple other words about spiritual practice. Just a minute ago, I mentioned a definition of spiritual practice that grew out of my experience with Vipassana Buddhism. I practice it for years. Uh, don't really that form of meditation anymore, but it's really, really valuable. And that definition of spiritual practice, and by the way, these will be on the internet Tuesday. That definition of spiritual practice is paying attention. Just pay attention. Be present. Pay attention. Developing whatever resources we need to be with what is in as undefended a way as possible without judgment. That's a, You do that you'll find some form of liberation. It's a really hard practice to do. And this, this spiritual practice has a rhythm. It's usually taking in some form of knowledge and information like this. 
and then it's followed by meditation, contemplation, action that requires the courage and endurance we talked about last week. Since then, I've come up with another definition for me of spiritual practice. And <clears throat> I came up with this because our egos so love to be in charge of things and cook things up. At least mine does. We love to be in control. We love to be right. We do not want to admit how we screw things up. So here's another definition. A spiritual practice is that which we habitually enter into with our whole heart, in which we assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance by our being taken over by the experience of sacred mystery, which we are powerless on our own to achieve. That makes sense? So two people are in love. They cannot force a loving encounter between them. But they can provide the context in which if that loving encounter is going to happen, it more than likely can take place. You can't do it while you're looking at your cell phone, while you're watching TV. You have to be present. A poet cannot force a poem to happen. But a poet can be in the context which, if poetry is going to occur, it's more likely to occur. That's the definition of spiritual practice to be in a context where if there's an opportunity for me to experience the sacred and be touched by the sacred, that can happen. So <clears throat> knowing me, I will likely keep reminding you that that's part of the work. Okay, back to the difference between Jesus and Buddha. So as I said, without going into the detail or history of it, the person who several centuries after the fact was declared to be the Buddha came out of his experience being enlightened with the understanding of what we now know as the Four Noble Truths. People suffer. Suffering has a cause. There's an end to suffering. And that end of suffering is the Eightfold Path. Those are the four noble truths of Buddhism. And he began to teach the Eightfold Path. I don't know how familiar you are with the Eightfold Path, but if everybody, everybody in this room did the Eightfold Path, we'd have a better group of people. That's just a fact. Some people got what Buddha taught, some didn't. Some people wrote down what he said. Some people amplified on it, made changes, added their own stuff. There's been a movement in Buddhism to try to find the historical Buddha, just like there has been in Christianity to try to find the historical Jesus. But anyway, Buddha lived a long time, and then he died. He lived a happy life. Most Buddhists are happy. If you look at pictures of Buddha statues, they're all smiling, and he's fat. 
So Jesus came out of his enlightenment experience, if you want to call it that, with this new self-understanding. And that self-understanding is, I'm a child of God. Now, don't worry about the word God yet. We'll get to that. But I'm a child of God, and so are you. And that message is what got him executed. Buddha said, I'm enlightened. Okay, good for you. Why don't you come to my group of enlightenment? Well, my group has better coffee. Jesus said, I'm a child of God, so are you. Go live like it. Oh, that's different. Now, we honestly have no idea how many people responded to Jesus. Some. Enough. He had apostles who were different from disciples. Now, I want you to think about this really carefully. Of all the major religions in the world, Christianity is the only one whose founder was executed. The only one. No other founder of any religion was executed by the powers that be. In addition to that, the second leader of the Christian movement, Paul, was also executed. Then the third major leader of the religious movement, Peter, was also executed. Then the fourth major leader of the Christian movement, James, was also executed. Now, if you were in line to be the next leader, <laughs> you would probably remember something you left in the oven and needed to get back home. And that's exactly what happened. The movement went underground. It went dark. It went secret. You know, most all of my early religious education, from even in seminary, was shaped by an understanding of Christianity that developed sometime around the Protestant Reformation. And then that was read back into the early history of the church, right? I honest, I shouldn't say this in church, I guess, but honest to God, I was raised in a church where I was taught that Jesus went to church just like I did. I'm serious. And that teaching that I got was not done for the most part, with few exceptions, with any bad intent. People didn't know any better. They weren't stupid. They were just ignorant. It's like the practice of medicine before germ theory. Those weren't bad doctors. They just didn't know better at the time. They operated with the knowledge and information that they had at the time. But looking back on it, we can be very judgmental about it because we're so smart now. Wait 10 years. But looking back on it, that's like trying to build a skyscraper from the top to the bottom. 
And that's why there's been so much interest in the Jesus of history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now we know better. There was no church. Now, one of the, the hundreds of resources available to us to hear about the early days of the church um, has been published in a book by the Westar Institute. The book is After Jesus, Before Christianity, a historical exploration of the first two centuries of the Jesus movements. I want you to notice that it is of the Jesus movements, not one. There's a Sunday school class here at St. Paul's that's studying this book right now, but you can't go there. <laughs> you wouldn't like this book, I bet, but it's, it's very interesting. So there was no church in the beginning. There were gatherings. There were communities. Now, if in your religious beliefs and practices, the state or government would more than likely get you if you crossed the lines that they had drawn, you would keep crossing the lines in secret. Ken Wilbur <clears throat> describes the people who spread the message and works of Jesus as traveling pneumatics. Pneumatic from the same word we get the word pneumonia from. They were, that is to say, they were people in whom the spirit was alive. They had this mystical consciousness that affected other people. Oh, wow. Who was it that said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus? Let this consciousness be in you? Those were prophetic voices. But when the movement got sanctioned by the government, that is when Constantine said to the leaders, you got to get your act together, these traveling pneumatics got replaced. They got replaced by two things. They got replaced by people who could be controlled and by beliefs you could have. <clears throat> now, people today who love to quote chapter and verse of Christian scripture, it's a test, that's a test for the teacher here. Somebody, you'll, you may go ask some of your friends to come to class one of the things they might ask is, does he believe the Bible? Those who love to quote chapter and verse of Christian scripture, more often than not, read back into those first 325 years, doctrines and beliefs that the early followers of Jesus would not recognize. The Council of Nicaea, which is where the Nicene Creed gets its name, was not held until 325. Just let that sink in a minute. You've got from A.D. 30 or so to 325, there is no creed. Well, I'll get to that in a minute. There were forms of one. There was no agreement about what would be the authoritative writings 
of the newly formed church for at least 70 years after that. And the story of why we have in the New Testament, Christian Testament, what we do is farcical. We have four Gospels because there are four directions of the earth. That's enough, said the Eusebius. And the story is they put all the manuscripts they had on a table and they left the room, locked the doors, and when they came back, the Holy Spirit had knocked off all but what they wanted left. That's the story. I'm not making that up. So you've got a period of 350 years in which there was not only no formally organized church, but where there was a great variety of beliefs and behaviors from one community to another. My point is, there was nothing to hold on to. One thing to know about this early church movement is that women played a much more prominent role than they're given credit for later because patriarchy wrote them out of the story. When, when next Sunday we'll come back and visit this, the Bible is the only document <clears throat> composed of documents that were written by losers. The only one. Can you imagine a history of the United States if it was written by Native Americans? That's what the Bible is, particularly Hebrew scriptures. So trying to get back to what Jesus said, what the movement was like prior to 325, that's what all the current history and religion is about today in, in the Christian movement, people. Okay, let's do a situation check. I know all metaphors are limited. I know that. But as I said last year, I never metaphor I didn't like. Aha. Uh -huh. So we're talking about moving into and living in the sacred stream. Now the image I have of the sacred stream is that at its origin, the water is clear, pure, refreshing. By the way, these streams, if you've ever seen the waterfall at Yosemite, can develop great power. Right? At any rate, you have the stream at its origin, and it flows for a while, and then it gets polluted. Usually now we know that humans pollute it. And the good news about what's happening in ecological movements today is we can clean streams up. And this cleaning up comes to where we are in some religious tradition today, what biblical scholars are attempting to do. John Dominic Crossan is the living authority on the Jesus of history today. He's going to be offering a course on the Jesus of history online during Lent. I'm going to take it, although I, I know him, I know his work, I've read most of his stuff, but I just want to be in his presence on video again. I'll put a link in the summary that goes out so that if you want to sign up for this course, you can do that as well. I use a quote from Crossan frequently that I love. 
<clears throat> My point, once again, is not that those ancient people told literal stories and we're now smart enough to take them symbolically, but they told them symbolically and we are now dumb enough to take them literally. So I just want you to try to get it that prior to 325, there was no church doctrine. Now, there were some of what we would now, reading back into it, call affirmations of faith. They were code words that permitted admission to the group. Jesus is Lord was one. He is risen. He is risen indeed was another. So prior to 325, it would have been unthinkable for a follower of Jesus to take up arms. Unthinkable. It was a pacifist movement. This week, someone sent to me an email posting that a Christian pastor with some influence has put out saying a civil war would be worth it to have the political outcome we want. It would have been unheard of in 325, prior to 325, to have had a heresy trial. Because there was no agreement about what was heresy. The only thing people had to hang on to was love for each other and mutual support and forgiveness and joy when they got together and sang and ate together. Now, there were some writings, but at first they were just sayings remembered. We don't have but a smidgen. Scholars have a hypothesis about one. Then we have the Gospel of Thomas, but that's not a narrative. Then there were some stories that were told. Stories were made up, like the one we talked about last week. Not a bad thing. It's what they did. Actually, the first writings we have in the Christian Testament were emails. Well, they weren't emails, but... <laughs> They were private letters written to a small group of people. And we have frozen them in time to say what was said then fits everybody everywhere for all of eternity. Remember what we said at the very beginning? We were under the illusion that we got it together. So did they. So after 325, lines were drawn in the sand. If you're not on this side of the line, and the way you get on this side of the line is believing this, then you're not one of us. Surely that can't have led to any trouble. You've all heard of John Calvin, right? John Calvin was a major movement in the Reformation along with um, Luther. And um, 
Calvin was in Geneva, Switzerland. He was not only pastor of a church in Geneva, he was mayor of the town. There was a preacher theologian whose name was Michael Cervatus, who was from Spain. And uh, Michael Cervatus and John Calvin had a theological dispute, and they wrote back and forth, and it was heated. They didn't like it. They were trying to convince each other of their opinions. They disagreed. Years passed, and one day, Cervatus showed up in Geneva and went to John Calvin's church. And John Calvin, being the mayor of the town, had Cervatus arrested and then burned at the stake while he watched. It was just a Christian thing to do. So how do we do this work of purifying the stream? Well, first of all, it's risky. It's risky. Do they know what you teach over there in that class? That doesn't grow out of nothing. Also, everything we come up with is provisional. And people don't like that. But 10 years from now, we're going to look back on today and say, I will at least. I can't believe. I was so naive when I said that. I hope I keep growing. What's so ludicrous to me about the arguments of the church over full inclusion is that in the Jesus movement, that would never have been an issue, ever. For one thing, sexuality was not defined in the first two centuries like we define it. So <clears throat> what do we do? Well, I want to begin by introducing some information about what's called the perennial tradition. And usually it's called perennial philosophy. Um, we'll talk about the religious aspect of this next week. The, the word perennial comes from botany, and it means evergreen. It, it comes to mean lasting a long time. That's what it means. And Aldous Huxley is given credit for the phrase um, perennial philosophy, but it goes way back way back. I, I heard about perennial philosophy when I was in graduate school. The first practical application I got from perennial, about perennial philosophy, and I know I'm quoting him a lot today, was from Richard Rohr. Rohr says, if something is true, it's always true and has always been true. One exciting thing today is that quantum physics, quantum mechanics, and cosmology are proving the truth of this. For example, a person we now refer to as St. Clement once said, when you know yourself, you know God. Now we got some scientific basis for saying that. All great spirituals have said the same thing. A Buddhist would say, only the ego is vulnerable to the givens of life as wood is vulnerable to fire. The diamond in the wooden house remains unperished. Imperishable, I love that. 
So, so perennial wisdom is not something old that's just now being discovered. It's always been here. It's always new and, and revolving. So something in us is greater than we know, and we are in something greater than we know. And we know this wisdom profoundly better than people did in the time of Jesus, but it's the same wisdom. You, see, you follow what I'm saying? We know the moon better than people knew it 25 years ago, but it's the same moon. This wisdom is very paradoxical. We have it within us, and yet we have to receive it. Both of those. If you've ever done any work with people who are actively benefiting from work in AA, you will hear them say the gift of grace in a way that church people don't know about. Most, most church people don't know about. This perennial wisdom is of such a quality that if all the teachers, all the books, all the institutions were to go away, it would come back. Now, here's where there's nothing to hold on to part comes in. This wisdom is so big that no one person, group, or teaching can contain it. Now, people who like to think that the Christian religion is exclusive and better have trouble with that. But no one group, person, or thing can contain it. We need one another to put it together and live it out. You can't be spiritual by yourself. Now, why is that? Because the foundation of perennial wisdom is love. And you can't be in love by yourself. It takes more than one person. I want to say this in another way. The Buddha did not invent anything. He rediscovered something. He said, I have seen the ancient way, the old road that was taken by all the all awakened, and that is my path too. I'm going to read that again. I have seen the ancient way, the old road that was taken by all the all awakened, and that is my path too. Or as Sarah Grant, and this is hands down my very, very favorite religious quote. Sarah Grant said, it isn't the way because Jesus took it. Jesus took it because it's the way. That is so beautiful. And being able to articulate it that way is getting close to purifying the stream. And you can't hold on to that. It flows. So if there's nothing to hold on to, what do we hold on to? I'm so glad you asked that question. Okay, I'm going to give you some of my current answers, knowing that they may change, will change. They're not what I would have said 10 years ago. They won't be what I would say 10 years from now, but they are what my answers are at the moment. 
you can hang on to the fact that all reality is one. This is a very spiritual teaching. This teaching was at the heart of the message of Jesus. Now, he made it religious, and so have we. He said, I'm a child of God, and so are you. We might say, I'm one with reality, and so are you. We're part of the same reality. He would say, anyone who's seen me has seen God. Here's another aspect of the perennial wisdom. Nothing is to be taken literally in the spiritual world. Nothing. Here's another. Matter is alive, and it is the mirror in which we see ourselves and each other. Another, for me, is growth and becoming constitute purpose. This means taking the previous principles into account, that we let go of our need to be right, to be in control, that we don't use others, abuse others. Jesus put it, love one another as I have loved you. Now, folks, none of this is hard to understand. It's hard to do. It's hard to put into action and to embrace as a reality. We want to hang on, and Jesus said, let go. Trust me. Have faith. Look at the lilies of the field, the birds of the air. See God in those like I do. And, and, and because we've had such a difficult time with that, it's why Christianity has become a problem or problems to be solved, things to believe, rather than a mystery to be involved in. You don't solve mysteries. You just go deeper and deeper and deeper into them until they become more mysterious. They're not things that you can hold on to. Teilhard de Chardin wrote, I shall savor with heightened consciousness the intense yet tranquil rapture of a vision whose coherence and harmonies I can never exhaust. I shall savor with heightened consciousness the intense yet tranquil rapture of a vision whose coherence and harmonies I can never exhaust. Hold on to that. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. Hope your team wins this afternoon. And that Taylor Swift makes it to the concert. See you here next Sunday.